What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Lee2B, the sassiest podcast for B2B, hosted by your favorite unemployed marketer, me, Lee Moskowitz. It's an exciting episode because it's a first for Lee2B. We're crossing continents to chat with a remarkable guest, Maiva Sifuentes, who's joining us from Barcelona. Maiva is the founder of Flying Cat Marketing, an agency specializing in SEO and content for B2B SaaS companies, with a focus on HR tech, MarTech, and sales tech. Maiva's unique blend of expertise brings a refreshing human touch to digital growth. She's not just a marketing powerhouse, she's an angel investor, fractional CMO, and certified confidence and communication coach. Plus, when she's not reshaping the digital world, you'll find her on the improv comedy stage or exploring new cultures. Get ready for another episode of Lee2B. Hey, Maiva. Hey, Lee. How's it going? Good. So nice to see you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm just here at home, hanging out, waiting for fall to start. It's still like 85 degrees here in the middle of October. See, yeah. like, it's been pretty hot here in New York, so like, I shouldn't complain, but now it's it's like 54 degrees here and, and chilly. Wait, do you is it Celsius or Fahrenheit in, in Barcelona? Fahrenheit, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Eighty-five degrees Celsius, you would be dead. That's a oven. well, no, no, that I know. That I'm not. That I know. I meant, do you do you use uh, it, or are you just Americanizing yeah, no. it for me? So I Americanized it. I'm from America. I have gotten used to Celsius, actually. So now, sometimes when people tell me temperatures in Fahrenheit, I'm like, okay, let me recalculate. It's weird how your brain can completely completely do that but uh yeah out here we use celsius yeah that's what i that's what i thought um yeah and thank you for americanizing it for me so i i could understand <laughs> that <laughs> of course of course so like i said this is a first for us we haven't had a, a cross-continental guest we're gonna start Yay. having a lot of them but yeah definitely an exciting episode i like to to dive right into it before we get into maybe flying cat specifically I'd love to hear your journey. Just, I knew you had a background in psychology. You did some freelance writing. How did you get to the world of SEO and content? Yeah, it's been quite a crazy journey. So, I mean, how far back do I go? <laughs> Basically, um, after I graduated uh, with psych my degree in psychology, I moved to Europe and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And my friends were like, what about job security? And I was like... Can I cuss on your podcast? I don't even know. <laughs> I was gonna say F drop. Oh yes, this is this this is explicit. Curse, curse away. I curse all the time. <laughs> so I, like, like, I, I specifically marked it as explicit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Awesome. So I feel more free now to express myself. Um Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I was just like, I don't care about job security. I'll figure something out. So then I found a job bartending. I was bartending for a few years and then I remember my family came to visit. They were like, we're going to go to Berlin and Barcelona. I was living in Paris at the time. They're like, we're going to go to Barcelona. We're going to go to Berlin. Come with us. And I was like, yeah, of course. That sounds amazing. And so I went to my boss and I was like, I need to take this weekend off because my family's going to Berlin and Barcelona. And he was like, nope, can't do that. You're staying here. And I was like, what? And then in that moment, I was like, that's it. This is never happening again in my life. Mm -hmm. So I started mm -hmm. getting into translation because my parents were both translators, grew up in a multicultural household. 
So I started translating stuff from French to English to see, I don't know, it was the only freelance thing I could think of because I didn't really have those kind of skills. I had always just worked in hospitality. So I started getting into translation. Translation turned into marketing translation specifically. So social media content, blogs, website copy, those kind of things. And then I started getting into copywriting from there, just as an additional service, and then content writing. So it just went pretty naturally. I was always just trying to find ways to diversify my income with the skills Mm -hmm. that I had there, which was basically my main skill was writing. When I really wanted to get into content writing, I started volunteering for a couple of, of companies and just writing for them. I think one of them was paying me, possibly. And I started wondering... Who was the purpose of this content? <laughs> like, why am I writing this for? So I asked them, what, what, what am I writing this for? And they were like, well, because you're supposed to write content. I was like, okay, you're supposed to for what reason? Like, well, because it's good for marketing stuff. I said, does anybody see, does anybody see this content? I don't know. Okay, so I started trying to look into the data and trying to see, does, does anybody see this content? And I realized nobody saw the content. It was writing for their blog. Nobody ever saw it. I was like, this feels like, at first I was like, this feels like a waste of time. But then I was like, this feels like an opportunity. What if I can get Mm -hmm. people to actually see this? So I was exploring different strategies for distributing the content. And I started playing around with with some of them. And I started getting really into SEO from there as a distribution method. And I learned that I, I don't know, I felt quite, it was just so rewarding when you start learning SEO you start doing stuff and then suddenly it's on the top of page one. You're like, whoa, did I do that? And then you do it again and yeah. you're like, whoa, I can keep doing this and it keeps happening. <laughs> I think I'm catching on to something here. And that's how I then I realized I like that the best of all the channels. Or not that I liked it the best, but I could deliver the most repeatable results with it out of any other channel that I had experimented with. And that's how I got there. Awesome. Now tell us, I know there's a fun backstory behind the name Flying Cat Marketing. Tell us, tell us that name. Yeah, so my cat, my poor cat, he's so sick right now, but this was pre, pre, he got sick later. Um, So my cat buddy, who's sleeping right in front of me, um, when I first got him, he was a street cat and he's has the same, he's like the black and white, the same logo face. It's actually completely based on him. Uh, I used to live on a they call it an attico, which is like a penthouse floor. Basically, it's the top floor, and I had the rooftop terrace. And when I first got him, I would let him out because I was like, he's a street cat. I don't know. I don't want to imprison him. And he jumped off seven stories, fell down. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I think he was chasing a pigeon or something. Um, and he just broke a couple bones. He was fine in three weeks. And the cat, the vet said that he had something called parachuting cat syndrome, which I thought sounded like later on after he was fine. I was like, that name is actually really hilarious. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue, so I had to change it to Flying Cat, but it was inspired from that. Yeah, parachute cat syndrome. Do you think people, is there like a parachute like person syndrome, do you think? Oh man, you know, I have never thought of that and nobody's ever (laughs) asked me that question. Parachuting person (laughs) syndrome. I mean, I guess they actually have parachutes. Yeah, well, we'll hope so. Hope so. Um, <laughs> but I love that it's named after your your pet. Um, that that's amazing. So, flying cat, you represent fifteen countries, I, I believe. Is that right? We're a lot. It's very multicultural. Yeah. So, tons of countries. How do you make that work? 
when you have employees in different places, clients in different places. Some people have have trouble managing and one office. How do you how do you manage so many different cultures and, and people? Yeah, it's it's challenging, I have to say. But actually, we just tell everybody they set their own work hours and you put it in the Slack profile. So this is when you can expect to hear back from me, for example. And we have clients that are in Europe and in the U.S. and our time zones don't go like the latest east is Pakistan. So we don't have anybody in Asia or Australia or anything like that. So it's all there. All of them have some overlap with EST. Um, nice. so there's already that it's not like there's somebody where it's impossible to meet with as if they were in Australia or something. Cause that would never work. Um, so there is some overlap with EST and then we generally put the people who are in kind of U S time zone on the U S clients, people who are in European time zone on European clients. And then we just have to try to find times in between when we're doing our own internal meetings. Um, we have some communication guidelines. I think the hardest part for us is not creating silos. Now, as we have different departments, there are communication silos, people kind of working on their own and trying to figure out how do we bring that sense of community without being like, you have to be on more calls <laughs> so that we can have yeah. fun together. And that part is hard, I have to say. Because some people do want that community sense, but they're also like, I'm not going to join another call after work. I've been on enough, which is fair enough. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> well, you speak five languages, so that probably helps managing all that. What are, what are the five languages that you speak? I speak English, French, Spanish, Italian, and Catalan. I do have to say my Catalan is deteriorating, but it's still there. Okay. <laughs> Is it because you don't speak it as, as often? I don't really speak it very much. And I started learning Italian two, three years ago. And there's so many overlaps with it that it's, I feel like it's kind of replacing it in my brain where sometimes I go to try uh -huh. to speak Catalan. I could speak it still. Um, but I think if I were at a party and there was like a group of five Catalans speaking to each other and I had to make, be a part of that conversation, then it would be a little challenging. So I am one of those people that I have a brain where I just I feel like I genuinely can't learn another language. I can barely speak English. Um, <laughs> I don't think I can learn another language. Do you think everybody can can learn multiple languages? What what are skills people can do just to to help with that? Mm, oh, that's a good question. I think that it's I think that if you are interested, anybody could. I've met some people who have moved here, some American people who come from like generations and generate all until like that all, you know, from the freaking Mayflower uh, American um, who have never in their family had seen other languages or been exposed to them. And then they come here and after a year, if they really put their minds to it, they can learn. They can learn even though and they, would, they surprise themselves with it. I think it's a mix of... Um, like, have you tried, Lee, to learn another language? Well, I mean, I so I, I took Spanish in middle school, high school, had to in college. Uh, so, like, I, I have the basics there. Like, I played around with Duolingo, but I just, I don't have it. I just don't think yeah. I have the brain for it. Sometimes it's, sometimes the problem is that you don't enjoy it. That it's like, yeah, I don't that, that's really this. it. It's frustrating. So I also, 
I also have the thing where it's like, oh, well, I, I'm never going to be able to, like, learn it. So, like, you know, like, you start self-sabotaging. Yeah. But no, I think there's too much pop culture knowledge up here for, for another language. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's that. It's like, okay, I'm choosing this other interest. And then, you know, we have our brain that's tuning and pruning the different pathways. Mm-hmm. So if you're not exposed to other languages, you're like, I'm focusing all my energy on here. So your language learning capabilities do get pruned. So it becomes, it's like a muscle Really. So if you're it's it's like as if you have never exercised in your life and then you want to start running a marathon, that's going to be painful. So it's also painful start starting to learn a language, but you can get there. It's just you have to be really you have to really enjoy it or really need it for some reason, maybe because you moved to a country or just be, you know, one of those freaky, like super dedicated people but it's just about putting the work in like anything else i think and i mean it does it does help to just have that as an interest and enjoy it i think that's kind of a main differentiator from a lot of people yeah and i love that analogy of like it's like it's like the gym or running a marathon it's gonna you have to work into it i know i know a lot of people who who speak multiple languages and some of them say like they they think in different languages at different times. Is that is that is that true? I do do that. Yeah, because there's some there's some expressions that it's really cool because you have access to a lot more. I don't know how to say. It. I don't want to say it's access to more feelings, but it's access to more modes of expression in like things that don't exist in other languages. And it's like oh, this kind of concept exists. I can express myself this in with this new concept that. Now that I've learned it, it is an experience that I have, but I've never had the words to say it. Um, and so that's pretty cool. And I think I do think in other languages sometimes. I mostly think in English, but for some things I do think in other languages. Uh, and I talk to my cat sometimes in French. I grew up with French, so that's my mother not my mother tongue it's complicated it was my mother's tongue and it was the first language i spoke but english i speak english better <laughs> but your your cat speaks french though my cat speaks french yes <laughs> <laughs> so this is a good segue into international seo is, is i guess what we we would call that so is that the right term for it international yeah. seo yeah it is yeah okay so with, with so many people we think about seo we think about getting our website up. Uh, we're very U.S. focused, but for for many SaaS brands, especially in HR tech, sales tech, they they span across different different countries. That to me is, is a gigantic factor and one of the really big factors that differentiates Flying Cat from other agencies is you have that native speaker and you have that international experience Mm -hmm. could you just speak to just the importance of international seo and maybe just some of the basics uh in the beginning for our listeners yeah so i would say before it becomes important because you have to know like for a lot of SaaS companies if you're going to be globalizing your brand and reaching other markets and doing international seo in terms of actually other languages, um, you need to have a customer support in those languages. Your product needs to be localized in those languages. Uh, if you are not self-serve, then you need a sales team in those languages as well. So ideally, you actually need boots on the ground in the locations where you're going to be international SEOing. For SaaS, I mean, for e-commerce, it's a little bit different. 
you can sell that anywhere. But for SaaS, you're going to need customer support, you're going to need sales, and you're going to need a localized product. So before you do those things, I wouldn't start with the international SEO because what's going to happen is you might attract people who then try to convert and then they're like, I can't even convert because I can't have a conversation with these people and I can't use the yeah. product. Um, so I would do that first. And so you can kind of check, is there interest? You can see on your Google Analytics, are there a lot, is there a lot of traffic coming from these countries? Might it make sense? What's the competition like in those countries? And it makes sense for a lot of companies. And also international SEO generally is way less competitive in other languages other than English. Like you have a way higher chance of of ranking on page one and driving revenue way faster. The volume is going to be lower, though. So that's, you know, there's a few things there. So those are some key things. I think a mistake that a lot of people make when they're doing international SEO is just translating. And I've seen this so many times. They have great SEO in English, and then they say, okay, let's try to get other audiences. Let's just translate. And then if you actually analyze the different languages, you'll see that the other languages get no traction at all. At all. And this that, happens every That's what time. I wanted to... That's what I wanted to ask about because so much with SEO is keyword research and keywords, but I imagine there isn't that overlap necessarily with so many search terms that it has to come more about search intent than the actual terms. Yes. How do you do that? Yeah, so you actually have to do the whole thing. You have to have like a separate strategy for it to really work. You have to have, there's sometimes some of the things can be translated, but you should... Uh, it's very rare that it's like, okay, keyword, I can translate. Oh, look, the search intent is the same. I can also just translate the blog post and it's going to be fine. That happens sometimes, but it's rare. So you actually have to just start from scratch with each language. Um, if you have pages that are performing particularly well in English, then you analyze. You say, okay, here's what I found. The keyword actually is in this other language. Now I have to check the search intent. And then see if you need to make a new article or not. Um, but the thing is, is there's also different buying patterns, different levels of education about the about the kind of software. You know, Americans, for example, are very well informed about different kinds of sales tech, martech. Uh, there's a lot of because there's a lot more content about it as well. There's a lot more people who are creating content. So. They're very well informed about it. They make buying decisions pretty fast compared to, and for pretty big budgets compared to Italians, let's say. Italians will scrutinize and scrutinize and scrutinize, and they mean, need so much information before deciding to make this kind of purchase. So you have to adapt to how they actually buy as well because it's different. Um, so it's, it is the search intent. It's also how the different cultures work, how much information they have, and for like if you're an HR tool, depending on the kind of HR tool you have, but there's going to be different regulations, legal regulations in the countries that they might want to learn about. You know, GDPR, for example, we have here in Europe, where in the US you have, I think there's a there's one in California, California data something. Yeah, California has it. Um, US isn't as strict with the GDPR. Yeah. And, and for our listeners, that's referring to cookie and consent tracking. Uh, yes. So yeah. Where that's a huge thing. Ooh, if you want to sell to a German, mm. GDPR, compliance, legal, like the whole website has to be, is this safe? Because they're, they're just concerned. Is this safe? Is this safe? Where the you can't even US, email Germans. 
you can't, you know, them. it's crazy. <laughs> you really have to completely localize your strategy, not just the content. Whereas in the U.S., it's more just like, does this provide value? Am I getting ROI? And then in Spain, I don't want to say anything wrong, but it's kind of like, is this the cheapest version? <laughs> um, you know, that's kind of how it feels like sometimes. So you really have to adapt in that way. And it's not just for SEO. Obviously, that applies to all of the marketing channels, but there yeah. is it to, for it to be effective. You need new keyword research, new search intent analysis, new content that's answers all of these issues per market yeah how how does link building work exactly too because so link building and again for our listeners uh you get other websites to link to you to build your domain authority you want higher authority websites to link to you it basically shows that you are a legitimate site higher your domain authority or rating easier it is to become number one on, on search terms so that, did i do a good job yeah. explaining that Yes, that's okay. basically, that's the summary of it. Google wants to see, oh, look, other websites that I think are trustworthy are also linking to this website. So that must mean that this website is trustworthy. It's, it's social proof in its own way. Um, for international SEO, you have to redo, like the best ideal scenario is that you're link building in each market. So if your website's in English, you localize it to Spanish for Spain, then the links you build are for other websites that are localized in Spain or Spanish. It mm -hmm. depends. Like some are, yeah. it's a little complicated with Spanish because then you're like, okay, are you talking about LATAM or are you talking about Spain? And some websites are like, specifically my market is Spain and others are like the whole Spanish speaking world. <laughs> so then it's like, it's a little <laughs> bit more complicated, <laughs> but ideally you want to, you want to build links at least a website that's in the same same language because mm -hmm. then it wouldn't make sense because you have your anchor text and if you have your anchor text that's pointing to a, something in a different language it's it just doesn't really work so moving to to programmatic seo which is another specialty of yours and just another to me differentiator about flying cat could you talk just very basics to begin with, uh, programmatic SEO versus just what we call normal SEO? Yeah. So, I mean, normal SEO is, I, I feel like programmatic SEO can be included within normal SEO because SEO is just how do you organically, how do you use search to organically drive traffic to your website? That's all of SEO. So programmatic is a right. tactic, I guess. Um, the way that a lot of people do SEO today, I mean, if there's the different pillars, there's off page, um, there's technical SEO, and there's going to be content creation on page. So people are manually writing every single page. If they're working with an agency or freelancer and they're focused on really good content, that could be a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars for one single page. Right. I mean, unless they're shorter pages, but let's say for a lot of SaaS, you need long informational, well-researched kind of pieces. So that's a lot of money. So you're creating all of these different pages and they each have their own, their own specific, unique thing. When you identify a pattern of keywords. So, for example, um, sales automation for law firms or sales automation for hospitals, sales automation for schools. Suddenly you're like, mm, this content doesn't really need to be that different because it's at the end of the day, it's all kind of the same thing. But they each every keyword has a very different search intent, but the content can be repeated 
in a way. Um, then you can do, you can leverage programmatic SEO, which is you build a template. So you write the content and it doesn't need to be written by AI. It doesn't need to be, the content can be written by senior level content writers. It can be edited by senior level editors. Preferred Just, too, I think. Yeah. A lot of people, when they hear programmatic, they're like, Oh, it's AI who's writing it. And that's not the case. Right. You write the template and you have the variables in there. An example is what Zapier did with their integrations pages. So they have a bunch of pages. They created all of those programmatically. And it's huge for them performing really well in SEO. Mm -hmm. um, and then you create a database that holds all the variables and you can generate all of the pages at once. So we did this with a client. We created 26 different templates and generated about 1,700 pages, where if we had done that at manual, like we charge, depending on, but somewhere between the price range that I told you, between 1,000 to 2,000 a piece. And with this programmatic SEO project, the client ended up paying around $54 a piece for the same level of quality content. It's just because you find mm -hmm. a repeatable pattern. So it's a really way to scale effectively if you find, so this works for competitor alternatives pages, uh, comparison pages, cause you can write, the, you can write the sections for each competitor just one time and then automatically match all the different competitors, for example. It can work for best tools for, there's a lot of different use cases for it, but it only works when you have that kind of repeatable pattern. Otherwise, yeah. you have to still write all of them manually. Well, I think that is a a great use case and example of AI plus SEO and using AI not to replace it, but to enhance it and do things that like we, we can't do humanly. For for too many people now, they're like, "Hey, ChatGPT, all these tools are out. I'm gonna go write a blog post in two seconds and tell ChatGPT to do it." Um, and then I'm going to rank on Google. Tell people why that's not going to work. Well, because first of all, everybody's trying to do that. So the internet's going to get flooded with shit. And so you're just trying to compete against other shit. Second of all, Google is really, really pushing with every algorithm update, helpful content. So helpful content, the main premise of helpful content is that it follows EEAT, which is ex experience, firsthand experience, expertise, authority, and trustworthiness. Now, while that's not a Google ranking factor per se, it is described in the quality, um, the search quality rater guidelines, which the quality raters who are human people who go through all the results and rate them based on these guidelines, they follow that to mark, okay, this is helpful content, this is not helpful content based on EEAT. So it feeds it back into the algorithm and that is how the algorithm does learn what is helpful content, what is not helpful content, because it uses those as examples. So with that kind of content, you you don't have firsthand experience because ChatGPT does not have firsthand experience. Uh, you don't have the expertise in there because it's just making things up. It's predictive text. So it's just making things up. It's not expertise. Possibly could have the authority if you published enough of it, but I still don't think that you could because most of the content would not be useful. For the trustworthiness, you do need to develop this reputation of having trustworthy content that is useful, that if people acted on it, it would make a positive difference for them. So Google keeps pushing in that direction. So we have already that that's going to be held against you in the algorithms. Then we have every everybody else is trying to do cheap chat GPT content. So how are you going to compete with that? And the only way to compete is really to invest in 
that firsthand experience, the high quality content writing and, and really trying to make helpful content. Yeah, I, I think like take list buying, for example. If you're going to buy a list to email market, that means somebody else also bought that list and has been email marketing. So yeah. GPT and AI tools, like the, the quote now is they're great like tape recorders. They're going to regurgitate back to you. Most of the time it's right, probably. I, a lot of time it's not right. Uh, don't like, first of all, it's super obvious when, when a blog's written with GPT, but everybody is doing that. If you are going to use GPT, in fact, or AI, um, in fact, I encourage you if you're writing blogs, do it around blog outlining and give it the the keyword topics and target keywords. Maybe figure out like, hey, the pe- what what else is asked in the people also ask sections. That's how I've used it to help me with an outline and stuff. Never never write it. Yeah, I think that's a pretty useful way. That saves a lot of time to do that. Say, okay, give me an outline. Or show me how I can think about, like, show me how I can structure this logically, and then you can go ahead and fill in the blanks yourself. The other problem is, like, you can do that, but then it'll just keyword stuff, which is yeah. such an old tactic. It'll put, like, in every, like, headline or sentence. The other thing, and you were speaking to, is just getting subject matter experts in your blog posts. One, it's just a good thing to do because then you're you're kind of marketing to other people. Hey, this person's your client, get them in your blog post. Or this person's from a reputable site, get them in your blog post because then they're going to share that. But mm-hmm. it also gives you the the link outside and it's, it's just easier to write the blog post too. So that I would always just reach out to people. Like what I would do is, hey, I'm writing a, a post on Salesforce hygiene. Let me go to LinkedIn, see who's talking about that in my network. And yeah. It honestly makes it way easier. Like you said, when I, I used to, um, we used to write the flying cat blog. We're just starting again now, but it's been really long time that we haven't been doing SEO and we're like, okay, we have limited time. Uh, how do we get X? And and I think it was an intern writing it at the time, which shouldn't do anyway, but it was like, okay, how do we get expertise in here? Because she doesn't have the expertise. She would go around up and get quotes and we get so many quotes and then just kind of structure it together. And it was just like fully basically reporting on what the actual experts were saying and then she structured it and saved a lot of time and we got really good content out of it actually now the problem is is everybody is a fake subject matter expert so (laughs) if you're if you're trying to get expert opinions you'll have people who will literally respond to every request or query they see of somebody looking for a source so you start getting just like really shitty responses or like somebody is like the president of a bath company and they're trying to be in a SaaS blog. Um, or they just say the same things with GPT. So we do we do scan for GPT. It's super obvious. But to me, I, I actually found it easier to get myself and my clients in other blogs and, and backlinks because so many other people are, mm. are using GPT now. So then when they actually hear from a well-written, yeah. 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 It is obvious when I have put out those mentions of I need a subject matter expert and the responses I get, so many, first of all, and most of them are really poor. And it's not even the person responding. <laughs> it's like, hey, I'm, yeah. I'm uh, not only, not even their assistant in-house, but I'm like some va agency responding yes. on behalf of this person 
I'm John Smith from blah 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 on behalf of my client. Like, <laughs> so yeah. moving on, we are going to get into our next segment, which is spill the tea with Lee. That's right. This is the fastest podcast for B2B, and we are going to get juicy. One thing I really want to get your unfiltered opinion on is tips and just ways Americans can improve on working with international companies. Many times, many times, like we, we necessarily don't have those trainings or haven't worked with different cultures as often as some some other countries so what tips would you give to americans oh okay this is tricky i mean there's a lot of different ways you could work with international clients so it could be your your oh you said clients i was gonna say it could be clients could be something else but you mean clients you, anything i just said client uh okay so let me think mm, this is tough i would say one thing that i see americans doing a lot is a simple like time zone thing they never ever convert the time zone yeah um that's quite simple <laughs> honestly Not people really. in people in california do that to to everybody like i'm always like et because because but like yeah <laughs> a, a lot in sass people just assume you're in california or something <laughs> Yeah, that's true. They're always just like nine o'clock. And I'm like, nine o'clock where? Uh, <laughs> please tell me. Um, yeah, so that's one thing. I think I, I would say be a little sensitive in the sense of like I was on a call this summer with this with this woman who and it was hot. And then I was I was here in Spain and she was like, um, do you guys have air conditioning in Spain? And I was like, yes. I mean, I don't know. It was a, it just felt like a, I don't know if this is a useful thing to say on this podcast. My guess too is that she watched Emily in Paris <laughs> and she saw that like Emily's building, a lot of places didn't have air conditioning, which a lot of, a lot of people were saying isn't true, but maybe she was watching that and asked that. <laughs> There is. So actually, there are some like in the UK, there's not a lot of air conditioning because in the summer, it'll be like 60 degrees. And that's mm-hmm. like a boiling hot day for them. So yeah, I guess they don't have and but they some of them do still have air conditioning. But in hot places, AC exists. It just felt a bit ignorant. I think this is a really hard question for me to answer some tips to working with international clients. I would say... Yeah, just uh, be flexible with the time. Know, for example, if you're like we have clients or we have team members who are in Pakistan. So they have Mm -hmm. all of the Ramadan holidays and things really change for them during that time. This work schedule, I would imagine energy levels, irritability levels, probably not that he showed it at all. But if I were fasting for Ramadan, my irritability levels would be higher. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good. It's a good. It's obvious, but it's like deceptively simple. It's like yeah. time zones and holidays. Like be mindful time zones of those. And holidays. Yeah, I always forget when the U.S. holidays are as well. So I'm like, hey, let's meet on Monday, and they're like, it's Memorial Day. Like, oh yes, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's just trying to yeah remember the the pace at how different countries are operating. Different, different question, but still a, a juicy question. Some people think SEO is dead or dying. I've talked, I mean, I'm interviewing. I've talked to so many people who should not be leading marketing interviews 
kind of like, well, why would you focus on SEO or why would you include that? Or so just general thought, you know, what would you say to people who think SEO is is dead or dying? SEO is not dying or changing. It's evolving. That's certainly true. And one thing that we all forget is SEO means search engine optimization. It doesn't mean search engine optimization for Google specifically. Uh So TikTok is SEO. If you follow anybody on TikTok who says, how do you improve TikTok? They're talking about SEO the whole time. YouTube is SEO. Pinterest is SEO. So in the grand scope of things, search engines are never going to go away. ChatGPT itself is heading towards becoming a search engine. So people want more than anything to be able to optimize to land in a chat GPT response, right? So that mm-hmm. also would be a search engine optimization. How do I show up in the in the response that chat GPT is giving people or that the other um, AI answers are being given? Because when you ask a question, you're searching for something. You're searching for an answer. Um, I don't think that Google is going away. I think it's experimenting. Things are changing. But certainly it's it's not dying. And you can see that by the results that we deliver our clients every month. You can see that by the results that companies that are very committed and dedicated to SEO, they are still receiving a large part of their leads, if not all of their leads, not all of them, but some of them are have over 50% of leads from organic and they don't have to spend as much on ads. They don't have to rely as much on ads. And this is still happening now. So it's not dying. It's just if you're half at, it's becoming more competitive and it's changing. And so you're, if you're half assing it, it's going to be really hard. Yeah. Two, two important things you said there. Um, being reliant on ads too many too many companies are um many companies like why should i do seo when i could just get to the top of google uh with with ads one those keywords cost a shit ton especially if you're in SaaS. um you're gonna start paying a lot of money for people to just check out your website even even the best google search campaigns even even the best are not gonna just 10x revenue on every single keyword because it's b2b it's a it's a long sales process so also, Google ads change all the time. They're becoming more dependent on their algorithms, taking taking control away from – I'm a paid media. I'm an SEO guy, so I get passionate. But they're taking away things from advertisers. So you never want to be too reliant on, yeah. on paid just because one day your keyword can be really, really more costly or it could just stop working entirely. Yeah. Yeah. It's unhealthy. It's really unsustainable to be totally reliant on paid. That's not a good business model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you just can't sustain. I mean, you can, but you can't. Uh, <laughs> the other the other thing, um, I think when people say SEO is dead or dying, what they really mean is it's too hard to get to the top yeah. of Google or it's too hard to – we're never going to rank for these terms. Um, I think that's what, what they mean. What do you think about that? I could see that. I could see that because it is hard. It does require uh... – more like the investment for SEO is getting bigger and bigger that I can't lie Mm -hmm. about that to be able to do well and compete but the payoff is huge in the long term in the midterm too it's scalable it's It's scalable obviously it's sustainable um it's it once you build it and it's going well it's really revenue that's going to keep coming and keep coming and you like you don't have to keep paying for it because you know you've paid for it once and then you build more things so I could see why people say that um, there are some people who want to, because right now, if they're like, 
I want to just spend a little bit and test the channel and see what it drives for me. That's really hard to do because if you're like, okay, I'm just going to spend a tiny bit, a few thousand a month, it's going to take you so long to see results where you should be testing with a lot more money up front to see if it's a channel that you can validate. But you do that with ads anyway. No big company is like, okay, we're going to test a new channel. For some reason, they do it with SEO. But then with ads, they're like, okay, we're going to dump 20,000 into this to just to test and get data and then see if it's channel, but they won't do it with SEO. (laughs) But if they did that, it would be different. Right. Like a a good test that I've done is like, hey, I don't know if we really should invest all this into SEO uh, or rather this keyword or topic cluster. Maybe let's start with a Google search campaign, uh, see what actually happens if we are towards the top. And again, being ads is not the same thing as as organic um, because there is different behavior. But that is a great way to see, okay, if we were top of page or on page one and we are getting clicks, what happens? Do they convert? Does it are they on the site long? Is it immediate bounce rate? So, So that's a good way, I think. I think that's a really good way of moving forward with it or testing if it's a search is a good channel for you. Okay. Although so some of the keywords this... that you would go after search that are like the long tail ones, you're not necessarily going to pay right. for that kind of traffic to test it. Right. And that's where phrase match, which is dying, yeah. and exact match, which is also dying. They're just getting rid of all their match types. Uh, a, a shady question for you. We'll, we'll see Ooh. if you have an answer for this. So you speak five languages. That's a superpower. Has there ever been a case in like a business or networking situation where maybe people didn't realize you spoke their language and you heard just something funny or maybe something you should have, shouldn't have? Uh, It hasn't happened so much in business, but it's definitely happened when I was traveling. It's happens when I was traveling a lot. So I always kind of play the American when I'm traveling. Um, and then people will just speak very freely in front of you in their language because they automatically assume you don't speak any other language. And I remember once being in a hostel and there was like a couple of, there was every, I understood everybody. It was Italian, Spanish, and French people all around and they were all speaking their language. That was very interesting. I can't remember exactly what they said, but they were definitely saying things as if they didn't expect other people to understand them, um, which is weird in Europe. Everybody speaks some languages. So it's like, it's very likely somebody else is going to speak French or Spanish, but uh, it has not happened in a business in a business situation. But everybody, I say, That's be good. careful <laughs> because everybody, <laughs> there's always a risk that people are going to understand you. I was at a restaurant with my mom; she came to visit me here in Spain, and uh, a lot of people speak French here. And the waiter came, and then she would, she just told me in French, like, "Do we tip here? Should we tip him?" And he's just like. Yes, you should like you spoke French. <laughs> I'm like, mommy can never assume. Just tip <laughs> or just don't ask if you're gonna ask. So one thing we didn't talk about too much yet is you do a lot of improv on the side. Yes. So one one rule in improv is is the yes end rule. And that's where you well actually you explain it. Yeah, so yes and is basically you're in a scene with another person and whatever they offer you, so it's called like they're gifting you something. So I'm saying, hey, our ship is almost leaving the moon. We better catch up. So I have told you that you're an astronaut, basically. So you say yes, Mm -hmm. you agree with that premise. Yes, we're an astronaut. Yes, I'm an astronaut. Yes, I'm on the moon. 
and and you add something to make the scene go forward. And I'm almost out of oxygen. We better go fast. So it makes things go forward. It means you agree with whatever is in doubt to you. So some people take that super seriously. Like you don't always have to agree with everything, but basically when somebody says that something is happening, you say, yes, that is happening. You agree to that and you add something else to it and make it move forward. I love that. So obviously in mar marketing and SEO, especially if you're on the agency end, you definitely do not always want to be saying yes to things. <laughs> But, but let's just put that aside. Let's say, what is something about that yes and maybe just principle that you use or, or marketers could use to enhance collaboration or creativity? Actually, we do use this. And I think it's a really good principle to to work by because you don't always be saying yes and doesn't always mean that you agree that you have to do everything somebody tells you to. So if the client is mm -hmm. like, hey, I've decided to, uh, you know, we already agreed on all of these topics and you're already halfway through working on them, but I decided to change my mind. Like now I, I actually have this sales enablement piece I really want to write for next week. So you can yes and that without having to actually do it. You say, oh yes, okay, that. you want a sales enablement piece. Very good, love that, really great idea. We're all we're working on all of these things, so we actually have to get that done within the price that we quoted you. So, and if you do want that, this is the additional price for it. Or these are some options that you can go for. So it's not just saying what it means is you don't just say no, we can't do that. You say yes, okay, I get it. This is what you want. This is what's happening. Or yes, this is what you want. And this is the current situation. And these are some options that I can offer you. This is how I'm teaching. I it love to that. Team. <laughs> that's awesome see improv improv is amazing uh um i also saw you are going to start a a monthly comedy series at flying cat yes we're, trying, we're gonna we're gonna do it we were gonna start it earlier this year but things got a little crazy so now the idea is starting it in january with the launch of our cool, like okay. official launch of the rebrand nice all right well, i will be looking forward i will be looking forward to that one one more question. Oh, I can't promise that. But one more question before I, I let you go. So Flying Cat is is a woman-led agency. Three out of four of the leadership team, your, yourself included, women. Your agency is 75% women. I, I'd love for you... So one, this is just often a, a male-dominated industry. I'd love for you to just give some advice or tips to... Not necessarily just women, but obviously here women. Just to people uh, looking to kind of go out on their own, expand, and and just get a name for themselves. Yeah, I think that a lot of women particularly are crippled by imposter syndrome and needing to feel ultra qualified about everything before they try anything at all. And this is not um, an unknown statistic that, for example, when a man is applying for a job, he only needs, I don't know, like half of the qualifications or something like that. And then a woman needs close to 90% before she'll even consider applying. She's also way more likely to ask for below the salaries because she thinks that that's going to help her or like the lower range that they offer, but some of them even below the range. So um, I think there's a lot that women can do there is just trying not to let that get to them, actually going out and trying things. Because as long as you don't go out and try to make mistakes and try to do things, you're not going to get the experience. They feel like they have to be perfect to do the thing that's going to give them experience, but the experience is what's going to help you get better. So try to let go. It's 
easier said than done, but try to let go of the need to be perfect or be excellent uh, and try to put it, go at it with a learner's hat and just everything is more experience for you um, and go after things that is a stretch for you because everybody else is doing it. Um, so don't be afraid of that. It's a lot of work that I think that particularly women need to be doing. They're like mm -hmm. really paralyzed by perfectionism and imposter syndrome. And I know a lot of I know a lot of uh, men in other genders have it, too. But from what I've seen uh, with the women I work with and with other women that I speak to, it's really they think they mm -hmm. need so much more experience and qualification that they can't get because they're not able to start because they don't think that they have the experience to start. It's just a vicious, vicious cycle. So just, yeah. just get out there throw yourself out there. Well, great advice to end it. Everybody, please go to flyingcatmarketing.com to learn more. Maiva, thank you so much. Is there is there any other things you'd like to call out before we end? <laughs> no, that's it. Yeah, come visit, come visit the website. Please do connect with me on LinkedIn. Let me know that you listened to this episode. I'm very active on LinkedIn. And thanks so much, Lee. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Yeah, thanks so much. And I will see everybody next time for another episode of Lee2B. Bye.